Chapter 8 of An Introduction to the History of Science by Walter Libby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Cooperation in Science, the Royal Society. The period from 1637 to 1687 affords a good illustration of the value for the progress of science of the cooperation in the pursuit of truth of men of different creeds nationalities, vocations, and social ranks. At, or even before the beginning of that period, the need of cooperation was indicated by the activities of two men of pronouncedly social temperament and interests, namely the French Minim father, Mersenne, and the Protestant Prussian merchant, Samuel Hartlib. Mersenne was a stimulating and indefatigable correspondence, his letters to Galileo, Jean Ray, Hobbes, Descartes, Gassendi, not to mention to other scientists and philosophers, constitute an encyclopedia of the learning of the time. A mathematician and experimenter himself, he had a genius for eliciting discussion and research by means of adroit questions. Through him, Descartes was drawn into debate with Hobbes and with Gassendi, a champion of the experimental method. Through him, the discoveries of Harvey, Galileo, and Torricelli, as well as of many others, became widely known. His letters, in the dearth of scientific associations and the absence of scientific periodicals, served as a general news agency among the learned of his time. It is not surprising that a coterie gathered about him at Paris. Hobbes spent months in daily intercourse with this group of scientists in the winter of 1636-37. Hartlib, though he scarcely takes rank with Mersenne as a scientist, was no less influential. Of a generous and philanthropic disposition, he repeatedly impoverished himself in the cause of human betterment. His chief reliance was on education and improved methods of husbandry, but he resembled Horace Greeley in his hospitality to any project for the public welfare. One of Hartlib's chief hopes for the regeneration of England, if not of the whole world, rested on the teachings of the educational reformer Comenius, a bishop of the Moravian Brethren. In 1637, Comenius, having shown himself rather reluctant to put his most cherished plans before the public, his zealous disciple precipitated matters, and on his own responsibility and unknown to Comenius, issued from his library at Oxford, Preludes to the Endeavors of Comenius. Besides Hartlib's preface, it contained a treatise by the great educator on a seminary of Christian pansophy, a method of imparting an encyclopedic knowledge of the sciences and arts. The two friends were followers of the Baconian philosophy. They were influenced, as many others of the time, by the New Atlantis, which went through ten editions between 1627 and 1670, and which outlined a plan for an endowed college with 36 fellows divided into groups, what would be called today a university of research endowed by the state. It is not surprising to find Comenius, who in his student days had been under the influence of Alstead, author of an encyclopedia on Baconian lines, speaking in 1638 on the need of a collegiate society for carrying on the educational work that he himself had at heart. In 1641, Hartlib published a work of fiction in the manner of New Atlantis and dedicated it to the Long Parliament. In the same year, he urged Comenius to come to London 
and published another work, A Reformation of Schools. He had great influence and did not hesitate to use it in his adoptive country. Everybody knew Hartlib, and he was acquainted with all the strata of English society. For, although his father had been a merchant, first in Poland and later in Elbing, his mother was the daughter of the deputy of the English company in Danzig, and had relatives of rank in London, where Hartlib spent most of his life. He gained the goodwill of the Puritan government, and, even after Cromwell's death, was working in conjunction with Boyle for the establishment of a National Council of Universal Learning, with Wilkins as its president. When Comenius arrived in London, he learned that the invitation had been sent by order of Parliament. This body was very anxious to take up the question of education, especially university education. Bacon's criticisms of Oxford and Cambridge were still born in mind. The legislators considered that the college curriculum was in need of reformation, that there ought to be more fraternity and correspondence among the universities of Europe, and they even contemplated the endowment by the state of scientific experiment. They spoke of erecting a university at London, where Gresham College had been established in 1597 and Chelsea College in 1610. It was proposed to place Gresham College, the Savoy, or Winchester College, at the disposition of the pacifists. Comenius thought that nothing was more certain than that the design of the great Virulam concerning the opening somewhere of a universal college devoted to the advancement of the sciences could be carried out. The impending struggle, however, between Charles I and the Parliament prevented the attempt to realize the pansophic dream, and the Austrian Slav, who knew something of the horrors of civil war, withdrew, discouraged, to the continent. Nevertheless, Artlib did not abandon the cause, but in 1644 broached Milton on the subject of educational reform, and drew from him the brief but influential tract on education. In this, its author alludes rather slightingly to Comenius, who adds something of Bacon's infelicity in choice of titles and epithets, and who must have seemed outlandish to the author of Lycidas and Comus. But Milton joined in the criticism of the universities, the study of words rather than things, and advocated an encyclopedic education based on the Greek and Latin writers of a practical and scientific tendency. Aristotle, Theophrastus, Cato, Varro, Vitruvius, Seneca, and others. He outlined a plan for the establishment of an institution to be known by the classical and Shakespearean name, Academy. A plan designed to have a great effect on the education in the direction indicated by the friends of Pansophia. In the same year, Robert Boyle, then an eager student of 18, just returned to England from residence abroad, came under the influence of the genial Hartlib. In 1646, he writes his tutor inquiring about books on methods of husbandry and referring to the new philosophical college, which valued no knowledge but as it had a tendency to use. A few months later, he was in correspondence with Hartlib in reference to the invisible college and had written a third friend that the cornerstones of the invisible, or as they termed themselves, the philosophical college, did now and then honor him with their company. These philosophers, whom Boyle entertained, and whose scientific acumen, breadth of mind, humility, and universal goodwill he found so congenial, were the nucleus of the Royal Society of London, 
of which on its definite organization in 1662 he was the foremost member. They had begun to meet together in London about 1645, worthy persons inquisitive into natural philosophy, Wilkins interested in the navigation of the air and of waters below the surface, Wallace, mathematician and grammarian, the many-sided petty political economist and inventor of a double-bottomed boat, who had, as a youth of twenty, studied with Hobbes in Paris in 1643, and in 1648 was to write his first treatise on industrial education at the suggestion of Hartlib, and finally make a survey of Ireland and acquire large estates. Also Foster, professor of astronomy at Gresham College, Theodore Hock from the Falls, a number of medical men, Dr. Merritt, Dr. Ent, a friend of Harvey, Dr. Goddard, who could always be relied upon to undertake an experiment. Dr. Glisson, the physiologist, author in 1654 of a treatise on the liver, Beapata, and others. They met once a week at Goddard's in Wood Street, at the Bull's Head Tavern in Cheapside, and at Gresham College. Dr. Wilkins, the brother-in-law of Cromwell, who is regarded by some as the founder of the Royal Society, removed to Oxford as Warden of Wadham in 1649. Here he held meetings and conducted experiments in conjunction with Wallace, Goddard, Petty, Boyle, and others, including Ward, afterwards Bishop of Salisbury, interested in Bullio's astronomy, and the celebrated physician and anatomist Thomas Willis, author of a work on the brain, Cerebri Anatomy, and on other fevers, De Febribus, in which he described an epidemic typhoid as it occurred during the Civil War in 1643. In the meantime, the weekly meetings in London continued and were attended, when convenient, by members of the Oxford group. At Gresham College by 1658, it was the custom to remain for discussion Wednesdays and Thursdays after Mr. Wren's lecture and Mr. Rook's. During the unsettled state of the country after Cromwell's death, there was some interruption of the meetings, but with the accession of Charles II in 1660, there came a greater sense of security. New names appear on the records. Lord Bronker, Sir Robert Moray, John Evelyn, Barreton, Ball, Robert Hooke, and Abraham Cowley. Plans were discussed for a more permanent form of organization, especially on November 28, 1660, when something was said of a design to found a college for the promotion of physical-mathematical experimental learning. A few months later was published Cowley's Proposition for an Endowed College, with twenty professors, four of whom should be constantly traveling in the interests of science. The sixteen resident professors, quote, should be bound to study and teach all sorts of natural experimental philosophy to consist of the mathematics, mechanics, medicine, anatomy, chemistry, the history of animals, plants, minerals, elements, and so forth, agriculture, architecture, art military, navigation, gardening, the mysteries of all trades and improvement of them, the facture of all merchandise, all natural magic or divination, and briefly all things contained in the catalogue of natural histories annexed to my Lord Bacon's Organon. The early official history of the Royal Society, Spratt, 1667, says that this proposal hastened very much the adoption of a plan of organization. 
Cavalry wished to educate youth and incur great expense, 4,000 pounds, but most of the other particulars of his draft the Royal Society is now putting in practice. A charter of incorporation was granted in July 1662, and later Charles II proclaimed himself founder and patron of the Royal Society for the Advancement of Natural Science. Charles continued to take an interest in this organization, devoted to the discovery of truth by the corporate action of men. He proposed subjects for investigation and asked their cooperation in a more accurate measurement of a degree of latitude. He showed himself tactful to take account of the democratic spirit of scientific investigation and recommended to the Royal Society John Grunt, the author of a work on mortality statistics first published in 1661. Grunt was a shopkeeper of London, and Charles said that if they found any more such tradesmen, they would be sure to admit them all without more ado. It was a recognized principle of the society freely to admit men of different religions, countries, professions. Spratt said that they openly professed not to lay the foundation of an English, Scotch, Irish, Popish, or Protestant philosophy, but a philosophy of mankind. They sought, hating war, as most of them did, to establish a universal culture, or, as they phrased it, a constant intelligence throughout all civil nations. Even for the special purposes of the society, hospitality toward all nations was necessary, for the ideal scientist, the perfect philosopher, should have the diligence and inquisitiveness of the northern nations and the cold and circumspect and wary disposition of the Italians and Spaniards. Hack, from the German Palatinate, was one of the earliest fellows of the society and is even credited by Wallace with being the first to suggest the meeting of 1645. Oldenburg, from Bremen, acted as secretary, along with Wilkins, and carried on an extensive foreign correspondence. Huygens of Holland was one of the original fellows in 1663, while the names of Alzout, Sorbiera, the Duke of Brunswick, Bulliol, Cassini, Malpighi, Leibniz, Leuenhoek, as well as Winthrop and Roger Williams, appear in the records of the society within the first decade. It seemed fitting that this cosmopolitan organization should be located in the world's metropolis rather than in a mere university town. Spratt thought London the natural seat of a universal philosophy. As already implied, the Royal Society was not exclusive in its attitude toward the different vocations. A spirit of true fellowship prevailed in Gresham College, as the society was sometimes called. The medical profession, the universities, the churches, the court, the army, the navy, trade, agriculture, and other industries were there represented. Social partition walls were broken down, and the fellows, sobered by years of political and religious strife, joined mutually assisting one another in the advance of science for the sake of the common weal. Their express purpose was the improvement of all professions from the highest general to the lowest artisan. Particular attention was paid to the trades, the mechanic arts, and the fostering of inventions. One of their eight committees dealt with the histories of trades. Another was concerned with mechanical inventions, and the king ordained in 1662 that no mechanical device should receive a patent before undergoing their scrutiny. 
a great many inventions emanated from the fellows themselves. Hooke's hygroscope, Boyle's hydrometer, of use in the detection of counterfeit coin, and, again, the tablet anemometer used by Sir Christopher Wren, the Leonardo da Vinci of his age, to register the velocity of the wind. A third committee devoted itself to agriculture, and in the Society's museum were collected products and curiosities of the shop, mine, sea, and so forth. One fellow advised that attention should be paid even to the least and plainest of phenomena, as otherwise they might learn the romance of nature rather than its true history. So bent were they on preserving a spirit of simplicity and straightforwardness that in their sober discussions they sought to employ the language of artisans, countrymen, and merchants, rather than that of wits and scholars. Of course, there was in the society a predominance of gentlemen of means and leisure, free and unconfined. Their presence was sought to serve a double purpose. It checked the tendency to sacrifice the search of truth to immediate profit, and to lay such emphasis on application as, in the words of a subsequent president of the society, would make truth and wisdom and knowledge of no importance for their own sakes. In the second place, their presence was held to check dogmatism on the part of the leaders and subservience on the part of their followers. They understood how difficult it is to transmit knowledge without putting initiative in jeopardy, and that quiet intellect is easily dismayed by the presence of bold speech. The society accepted the authority of no one and adopted as its motto, nullus in verba. In this attitude, they were aided by their subject and method. Search for the scientific truth by laboratory procedure does not favor dogmatism. The early meetings were taken up with experiments and discussions. The fellows recognized that the mental powers are raised to a higher degree in company than in solitude. They welcomed diversity of view and the common sense judgment of the onlooker. As in the Civil War the private citizen had held his own with a professional soldier, so here the contribution of the amateur to the discussion was not to be despised. They had been taught to shun all forms of narrowness and intolerance. They wished to avoid the pedantry of the mere scholar and the allied states of mind to which all individuals are liable. They valued the concurring testimony of the well-informed assembly. In this investigation of truth by the experimental method, they even arrived at the view that true experimenting has this one thing inseparable from it, never to be a fixed and settled art, and never to be limited by constant rules. In its incipience, at least, it is evident that the Royal Society was filled with a spirit of tolerance and cooperation, and was singularly free from the spirit of envy and faction. Not least important of the joint labors of the Society were its publications, which established contacts and stimulated research throughout the scientific world. Besides the philosophical transactions, which, since their first appearance in 1665, are the most important source of information concerning the development of modern science, the Royal Society printed many important works, among which the following will indicate its early achievements. Hook Robert, Micrographia, or Some Physiological Descriptions of Minute Bodies Made by Magnifying Glasses, 1665. Grant, John, Natural and Political Observations Made Upon the Bills of Mortality with Reference to the Government, 
religion, trade, growth, air, diseases, and the several changes of the city. Third edition, 1665. Spratt, Thomas. The History of the Royal Society of London for the Improving of Natural Knowledge, 1667. Malpighi Marcello, Dissertatio Epistolica de Bombice, Societate Regia Londini di Cata, 1669, On the Silkworm. Evelyn John, Silva or a Discourse of Forest Trees, 1670. Horrocks Jeremiah, Opera Astronomica Postuma, 1673. Malpighi Marcello, Anatome Plantarum, 1675. Willoughby Francis Ornithology, revised by John Ray, 1676. Evelyn John, A Philosophical Discourse of Earth Relating to the Culture and Improvement of It for Vegetation, 1676. Grew Nehemiah, The Anatomy of Plants, 1682. Willoughby F. Historia Pichum, 1686. Ray John Historia Plantarum, two volumes, 1686 to 88. Flamsteed John, Tide Table for 1687. Newton Isaac, Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematica, London, 1687. After the Society had ordered that Newton's Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy should be printed, it was found that the funds had been exhausted by the publication of Willoughby's book on fishes. It was accordingly agreed that Halley should undertake the business of looking after it and printing it at his own charge, which he had engaged to do. Shortly after, the president of the Royal Society, Mr. Samuel Pepys, was desired to license Mr. Newton's book. It was not merely by defraying the expense of publication that Halley contributed to the success of the Principia. He, Wren, Hook, and other fellows of the Royal Society concluded in 1684 that if Kepler's third law were true, then the attraction exerted on the different planets would vary inversely as the square of the distance. What then would be the orbit of a planet under a central attraction varying as the inverse square of the distance? Halley found that Newton had already determined that the form of the orbit would be an ellipse. Newton had been occupied with the problem of gravitation for about 18 years, but until Halley induced him to do so, had hesitated on account of certain unsettled points to publish his results. He writes, quote, I began, 1666, to think of gravity extending to the orb of the moon, and thereby compared the force requisite to keep the moon in her orb with the force of gravity at the surface of the earth, and found them answer pretty nearly." As early as March of that same year, Hooke had communicated to the Society an account of experiments in reference to the force of gravity at different distances from the surface of the Earth, either upwards or downwards. At this, and at every point in Newton's discovery, the records of co-workers are to be found. By Flamsteed, the first royal astronomer, were supplied more accurate data for the determination of planetary orbits. To Huygens, Newton was indebted for the laws of centrifugal force. Two doubts had made his meticulous mind pause, one of the accuracy of the data in reference to the measurement of the meridian, another of the attraction of a spherical shell upon an external point. In the first matter, the Royal Society, as we have seen, had long been interested. 
and Picard, who had worked on the measurement of the earth under the auspices of the Academy de Sciences, brought his results, which came to the attention of Newton, before the Royal Society in 1672. The second difficulty was solved by Newton himself in 1685, when he proved that a series of concentric spherical shells would act on an external point as if their masses were concentrated at the center. For his calculations, henceforth, the planets and stars, comets, and all other bodies are points acted on by lines of force, and, quote, every particle of matter in the universe attracts every other particle with a force varying inversely as the square of their mutual distances and directly as the mass of the attracting particle, unquote. He deduced from this law that the Earth must be flattened at the poles. He determined the orbit of the moon and of comets. He explained the precession of the equinoxes, the semi-diurnal tides, the ratio of the mass of the moon and the earth, of the sun and the earth, and so forth. No wonder that Laplace considered that Newton's Principia was assured a preeminence above all other productions of the human intellect. It is no detraction from Newton's merit to say that Halley, Hooke, Wren, Huygens, Bullio, Picard, and many other contemporaries, not to mention Kepler and his predecessors, as well as the organizations in which they were units, share the glory of the result which they cooperated to achieve. On the contrary, he seems much more conspicuous in the social firmament because, in spite of the austerity and seeming independence of his genius, he formed part of a system and was under its law. Shortly after the founding of the Royal Society, correspondence, for which a committee was appointed, had been adopted as a means of gaining the cooperation of men and societies elsewhere. Sir John Moray, as president, wrote to Monsieur de Montmort around whom, after the death of Mersenne, the scientific coterie in Paris had gathered. This group of men, which toward the close of the 17th century regarded itself not unnaturally as the parent society, was in 1666 definitely organized as the Académie Royale de Sciences. Finally, Leibniz, who had been a fellow of the Royal Society as early as 1673 and had spent years in the service of the Dukes of Brunswick, was instrumental in the establishment in 1700 of the Prussian Academy der Wissenschaften at Berlin. End of chapter 8